Good morning, beloved. Good morning, beloved. I'm going to need a little extra grace. My sermon got deleted. So we'll see how this goes. You know, there was a time when we were actually at the lake. We went on a Song of Solomon retreat. This is my family. So cool. We went on a Song of Solomon retreat as a family up to a cabin. And it was my idea, maybe for today. We went out and... um, I remember us being outside. We um, were at this picnic table. I remember it so clearly. And we were just like, let's play a game. What game should we call? Which game should we play? And we were like, let's play Sermon. I don't know. We didn't, we didn't have a name, I don't think. But we were like, let's play this game where we just like preach without any preparation. And you have to like preach it. And maybe like we'll give you a verse and then you have to go. And so we would practice. So let's play that game today. <laughs> Here's the verse I get. Uh, Let's see. If you could open up to Revelation 2, uh, verse 12. That's going to be the primary uh, message for today, or uh, verse for today. And um, this message is inspired by um, my kids. Because when, I don't know, it's just been over the last few months that they've been kind of spiritual warfare has become a bigger thing for them. And, uh, you know, in bedtime and different things like this. And so they've been battling and they, and they say, well, you know, what do I do, Dad? What do I do? Or, Mom, what do I do? And I say, or we say, you know, you pray. You pray that the bad stuff goes, right, in the name of Jesus. And this, this message is inspired by them not having the demon leave. What do you do when the demon doesn't leave. And we can say, pray again. And that's great. And we can say, we have to fight for this. And that's great. And one day, maybe we'll have the power to make the demon leave. And that's great. But what do you do that night? Right? It's a reality. What do you do that night when the demon doesn't leave? It's a reality that we all have to face. And it's a hard question. But I think it's important as Christians that we talk about it because this is reality, right? What do, you, like, what do I say to my kid? You don't have enough faith? You'll get there? It's like, what do I do now? How do I fall asleep? As they look up at you. It's still there, Dad. So, it's a tough question, especially in a church where we want revival, we want victory. But I think it's so important because what I don't want is for my kids to feel condemned. And what I don't want is for you to feel condemned. I want us to be able to walk with this in endurance. I want us to be able to endure the rigors of this life and to be faithful, because I see many people seeking after revival and then after a few years giving up. And I want to be a church that endures to the end through everything that this world throws at us, every battle. And so we need to know what to do when the demon doesn't leave. Okay, so Revelation 2, verse 12. We've been speaking out of the book of Revelation because I believe, like typically when people speak about the book of Revelation, they go right to uh, predicting the end and, and you know what's happening in our world right now uh, in, re- in relation to the end and to the second age and um, Jesus' return, and that's great. But what people often don't do or miss is the fact, uh, is the reality that Revelation reveals Jesus. 
And so what we've been doing is walking through the book of Revelation as it pertains to the character of Jesus and of Jesus' kingdom and how he relates to his people. And there's just as much to unpack in Revelation like that as there is in you know, Matthew. Because Matthew reveals Jesus, but the revelation of Jesus, the book, Revelation, really reveals Jesus and who he is. And, but we miss it because we get caught up in the prophecy, which is great, but we don't want to miss it about who he is. And so that's what we've been working on. And, and it's right here also in this, in uh, Revelation 2, verse 12, in uh, Jesus' words to a church. I mean, have you ever wanted to know what Jesus would say to a church? Have you ever wanted to know what Jesus would say to our church? Well, let's look at how he talks to churches. Because he does. And it says in verse 12, and, the, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. So Jesus has this picture of himself with this sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell. So this is a church in Pergamum. And he's, Jesus is saying, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also some of you, so also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's not just for them, it's also for all of us. To the one who conquers, I think that is just such an interesting, in the, in the, in the, something to really pay attention to, the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, with a new name written on the stone, so that oh, written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So a hidden name. Jesus, I pray that you would help to unpack what you said to the church in Pergamum for us. We're supposed to listen to what you're saying to these churches. I pray that you would help us to understand what you're saying to this church in the name of Jesus. Give us wisdom and revelation, so that we can follow you faithfully. Amen. I like this church, and I like this church because it dwells at the throne of Satan. It dwells at the throne room of Satan. Let me read it again. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. You hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith. In Pergamum, um, there were a lot of uh, temples in that area, in Pergamum. And, uh, it was kind of a central spiritual hub. It's located kind of in northern Turkey, what would be now Turkey. And we, the, the ruins there are fairly well preserved. And they had a lot of temples. They had um, an altar, the altar of Zeus. 
who was like the king of kings and a very powerful god, you know, living on the mountain using thunder and lightning to destroy. And you could go there and you could pray for for power. They had, I don't have the names anymore, but um, they had a god there who was uh, there for partying, basically, licentiousness. And the parties there would get so intense that sometimes people were killed, sacrificed, basically. And there was, you know, prostitution and things like that as part of the worship of that god of wine and revelry. There was a god for the harvest, so you could pray for food and provision. Um, there was a god for wisdom. I believe that one was Athena, a goddess. You could pray for it would help kind of with wisdom, like for Rome with the battles that they would fight. There was a god for healing. And in the temple, they would use snakes, and they would have snakes um, as part of their healing rituals and trances. And one of them was that they would be in a room in the dark at night and basically in a trance. And as people were kind of sleeping or in this you know, altered state, they would have released the snakes into the room and they would crawl over people. It's probably where we get our medical symbol of the, of the staff with the snake wrapped around it. That was their hospital. Um, and there was a temple there to Caesar an imperial cult where people could go and worship kind of like a savior probably the closest to the equivalent of Jesus in that kind of area in that, in that religious structure so people would come from far and wide for healing for provision, for wisdom, for a party for power and for a savior and they would pray so when Jesus here is talking about Satan's throne. That's the picture. That's the spiritual picture of what's happening in Pergamum. So if you're ever wondering what's happening when you see people engaging in these kinds of activities, this is the spiritual reality that's happening, that, that what Jesus calls it. I mean, we have lots of verses and things that we go to saying that Jesus is the only way. And we normally don't go to a passage like this, but this is another passage supporting that. When you see people worshipping in alternate ways, Jesus calls it the spiritual reality. It might not be the throne of Satan in that particular place, but it's an it's a area of spiritual wickedness and, and an evil stronghold. And this is one of the passages that supports this idea that certain areas have different spiritual realities and different spiritual atmospheres that we talk about. This is one of the main scriptures, I believe, that actually supports that theological idea that there's a different spiritual atmosphere depending on where you go. And that you're facing different realities. And people have tried to outline that in different countries. And how things feel. And here you have this church of Pergamum sitting at this throne, at this throne room, in this, at the throne of Satan. I'm a psychologist, and one of the one of the most interesting areas of psychology is the is the idea of dissonance. Basically, it's the idea of conflict. What happens when you are in conflict psychologically within yourself? If you're dissonant within yourself, you have ideas that don't fit together. 
What happens when you have ideas with somebody else and your ideas don't fit? And that's what we have here for this church in Pergamum. They are sitting there in dissonance with these other cults. And it's powerful. I mean, this is like the practice of the city. And you're living there and you believe something completely different. You believe that Jesus is the king of kings, not Zeus. You believe that Jesus is the savior. Jesus is the wise one. Jesus is the provider. Jesus is the healer. More than these gods that have been set up in this area. You're in dissonance with the reality around you. It's interesting, there's an experiment, there's lots of experiments around dissonance because we love consistency psychologically. We work towards consistency. So when there's dissonance, people will change, move, react. And this one experiment... The people in the experiment had to write a paper on a certain attitude, pro or against, it didn't matter. And then what they did was they said, you're going to be meeting with somebody with the same attitude or some other people randomly were, to- were chosen to be meeting with somebody with a divergent, a contrarian attitude. You're, so some of them are like, yay, I'm, I'm interpreting here, like I'm meeting with somebody who is like-minded. And some of them, randomly, again selected, were like, oh my goodness, I'm meeting with somebody who believes the opposite of me. And the experimenter said, I'm going to go to the other room and I'm going to get the person who you're going to talk to about this but can you just set up the chairs while I go get them? And they walked out. So there were two chairs there, maybe stacked, I'm not sure. But anyway, they had to set up this, these chairs. And what they found was that when they, were, when they knew they were going to meet with somebody who was of similar-minded beliefs, they set the chairs up closer together than the people who knew that they were going to meet with somebody who was of a contrarian belief. When it was a, somebody who was going to disagree with you, they just put the chairs a little bit farther apart. It affected the physicality of the room. A psychological reality affected the physical presence in the room. Our spiritual realities, our psychological realities affect... When you are in Pergamum, it's different. Because you're closer. And we know this. We can feel it. And we set it up so that we're comfortable, so that there's more spiritual, there's more psychological, there's more physical distance with people we disagree with. Why do we do that? Why does it matter how close you're sitting to somebody who just... I mean, it might be so in you that it's like, of course, Cyrus. I don't want to sit close to somebody who disagrees with me. Why not? Do they smell? It's physical distance. It doesn't matter. It's a psychological idea. If they're sitting closer to you, It doesn't mean that they have a better argument. It doesn't make you vulnerable. These aren't dangerous people. Again, it might be so in you that of course I would want to sit farther apart from somebody I disagree with that it might just, it might, you might miss the fact that this is completely absurd. That you would sit farther apart from somebody who disagrees with you. And yet, it's very real. It's very real. And it affected the people in Pergamum. This I have against you. You're sacrificing to idols. You're being promiscuous. The teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. Nicolaitans. You're eating food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Now, in our context, that means certain things. But in their context, in Pergamum... To eat food sacrificed to idols was the norm. 
This is not an outside thing. That was what you did in the city. When you practice sexual immorality, what he's, what he's probably talking about here, especially as it references Balaam and the Nicolaitans, is he's talking about how they would go and visit the prostitutes in the temple. It was part of worship. What he's saying is, you're going and you're mixing your beliefs. You're saying you're Christian. You're saying you're following me, but you're also doing some of the things that the people in this city are doing. You're going to the temple and you're eating this food. You're going to the temple and you're practicing sexual immorality. You're going against me. One of the main things that happens when we have dissonance is we try to correct it. One of the ways to correct it is to create physical distance. I'm going to put the chairs farther apart. But if you can't do that, if you're living in Pergamum, the other way to correct the dissonance is to start to agree. I'm going to be more comfortable if I just agree with you. And you're going to be more comfortable if you just agree with me. There's pressure. There's actually a few different options if you have dissonance on how to correct it. If I disagree with you, there's a few things we can do. One is I can change my beliefs. Two, you can change your beliefs. Three, I could say it doesn't matter. I could devalue the belief. I'm a Christian, but that's not a big deal. I remember talking to a psychologist, and they're like, I'm okay with Christians, but it starts to get up to be a problem in therapy when they make decisions based on their faith. That's when it's a problem. That's when you have to kind of fight the Christian. I didn't say fight the Christian thing, but you kind of get that impression. Christianity becomes a problem when it's important. But people saying they're a Christian isn't a problem when it's not important. So if I disagree with you, I could just say it's not important. Or I could say that you're not important. So I could change my beliefs. I can say it's not important. I could say you're not important. I can distance myself relationally from you. This is why it's so hard to be unyoked in a romantic relationship or to, to have different values. You will be close to somebody. You're going to want to agree with them. It's going to put pressure, dissonance. And you're either going to devalue the beliefs, you're going to distance yourself, or you're going to change what you believe. And so what Jesus is saying is you blended yourself. I know it's tough. I know where you live, where Satan's throne room is, but you can't blend. You can't blend yourself with them. You have to cope with the dissonance. You have to cope with the dissonance. Now let's bring it back to what I was talking about we would talk about, which was, what do you do when the demon won't leave? And the reason I'm talking about this church in Pergamum is because the demon didn't leave. Jesus didn't say to them, just cast it out. He didn't say, I have this against you. You still have the Satan in your city. That's not what he said. He said, you blended. That's the problem. He wasn't expecting them to cast it out. This might be hard to hear, especially in a church like ours. There are demons that you will not cast out. I said it. Did you know that there are demons that you're not allowed to cast out? And it might seem radical that I just said that, but it's completely logical. If every human being's job was to cast out every demon, let's say, let's say we're just going on the belief that every human being 
was cast, supposed to cast out every possible demon. Jesus was a human being. There's still demons. He didn't cast them all out. In fact, he told his followers not to. Give me a second. It's going to take a little longer than before. No, not that one. There we go. Okay. So Judas comes to betray Jesus. The man named Judas, he comes. One of the twelve was leading this crowd. He drew near to Jesus and kissed him. Lord, shall I strike with the sword? His disciples are there with him. And one of them struck the servant of a high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed it. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you the day after the temple, you did not lay a hand on me. But this is the hour. But this is your hour. And the power of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away. Jesus, in another passage, I got the wrong one, said, don't do it because the scriptures must be fulfilled. This is supposed to happen. I'm supposed to be led away. The scriptures must be fulfilled. There's a hint of that here. This is the hour of darkness. This is their hour. I'm ordaining the fact that they have power over me. He says in another passage, he says, Don't you know that I have legions of angels that I could persuade the Father to come against you with? When Jesus, is raised, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, some people will say, if he hadn't said Lazarus, all of the dead would have risen. He had the power to command every demon to leave, to wipe it off the face of the earth. But guess what? Revelation hadn't come yet. If you want to be the one who opens the scrolls, guess what? You're not the one. Jesus is, and Jesus' hour hasn't come yet to come and unlock the scrolls and wipe every demon off the earth. The demons have to be there so the scripture can be fulfilled. Jesus has a bigger plan. He's got a big plan, and he's going to wipe the demons off the earth, and we have passages about that, and it's going to be beautiful. But right now is the hour of darkness for many demons. And some of these demons may be, at times, ordained to come against you. Just like they came against Jesus. Why, Cyrus? Well, the first thing to say is, I don't know why. All the time. But the main thing you have to know is that it's true. The main thing you have to know is that it's true. And it happened in Pergamum. Hold fast to my name. 
I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name. You did not deny the faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you. It was the day, it was a faithful witness who was killed, not an unfaithful witness. It's not the unfaithful witness who gets martyred. It's the faithful one. It's not just Jesus who had the hour of darkness come against him. It was, had happened in Pergamum. And it was a test for the church. You were faithful, even though one of you was killed by the dissonance between you and the people. By you and the throne of Satan. When it came against and the power of Satan overcame one of yours, my faithful witness, Antipas, you held faithful. And I know you did it. And it goes to your own faithfulness that you did. And Antipas's. Antipas was not unfaithful because the demon overcame him. He was faithful in the presence of the power of a demon. Why does the demon have power over you? To prove your faithfulness. Why did the demon have power over Jesus? So that he would be counted worthy to open the scroll and take every demon off the earth. How will you be shown to be worthy if you don't have a conflict? You know, sometimes I think that a lot of the politics that happens in Christian churches is because the church isn't doing the warfare they're supposed to. It's like, yeah, you're supposed to go to war, but nobody wants to go, so they have war with each other. If you were more busy with the warfare that you were actually called to, we wouldn't be so internally con- there wouldn't be so much internal conflict. We're called to war. You are called to be in the presence of a demon. I call it presence warfare. We are called to overcome demons. I'm not denying any of that. We tell demons to go in the name of Jesus. Amen. And if we had perfect discernment with that, we would know which ones we can tell to go and which ones we can't. Jesus knew which ones he was told to go, tell, like, tell that one to go, and he did it. And they left. And then some of them he said, it's their hour. It's their hour. I'm going to heal the ear of the one who's about to kill me. Because it's their hour. I'm going to actually help them do their job. They actually need my help. They're so feeble in their attempt to come and capture me that I have to help them and tell my guys to lay their swords down because they're not doing it very well. But just give them a minute. They only have Satan on their side. And this is to be the, so the scriptures have to be fulfilled. So we have to help them out a little bit. Here's your ear back. Okay, now here's my hands. You can handcuff me. It's like I have to help you do your job to overcome me. I mean, think about the God of the universe being overcome by a demon. It's like, I'll help you do it. But we don't have perfect discernment. I wish we did. I wish that I could tell you which demon will go and which one won't. But just know that some of them are ordained. Jesus says it another way, the parable of the weeds. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in the field, but when his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master's house came and said to him, Master, did you sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? Do you want us to cast the demon out? No. 
lest in gathering the weeds you should root up the wheat along with it. He doesn't want to hurt the wheat. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will tell the reapers, I will. Jesus was going to cast every demon out. I will tell the reapers. When I have my seal, when I unlock the judgments of God, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles. This is what he's going to say. Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. I will come. It will happen. Every demon will be taken off of the earth, but in my timing. In my timing. Why are there demons that attack us? I believe it's also to show our faithfulness. I think there's actually a lot to say about why demons are on the earth. But the other reason is because we need the demons somehow, otherwise it hurts. There's a time of mercy. We need this reality to continue mercifully so that more wheat can grow. I want to understand it all, but even if we don't, we just have to know it's not your fault if every demon on the earth doesn't listen to you. If you get into a place where you believe, I am called to cast out demons, and you start naming every city in the world, and then at the end of it you're like, okay, check the news. And it didn't happen? No. It's not your calling. To do that. It's a big job. It's a big job. And there's only one who is worthy to gather up all the tares. So what do you do when the demon won't leave? What did Jesus do when the demon didn't leave? What did Antipas do when the demon wouldn't leave? Psalm 23. I'm just going to read the whole thing. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me and your rod and staff, they comfort me. And this is what I was really wanting to highlight. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He didn't say, I will prepare a table and cast your enemies out of the table. Listen to it. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely the goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There will come a time when I am no longer at the table with my enemies, but even then, you fill my cup. We are not called to cast every demon off of the earth. We are called to eat at the table of our enemies. We are supposed to, call, to sit with our enemies and our cup is supposed to overflow in their presence. That is a beautiful thing to our Lord. I want to I heal every sickness. I do. I really do. I want to convert every person, and that's the Lord's heart. 
I want to cast out every demon, and that is the Lord's heart, and he will do it. I don't want to take anything away from those. But there is something more important. There is something more important than casting out every demon for us. There are people who cast out demons who won't even get into heaven. This is Jesus. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Those eyes are more important than being healed. Those eyes are more important than making sure the demons aren't around you. When Jesus was on the cross being overcome by a demon, he was looking at the eyes of the Father, and he was saying, your will be done. I will be faithful to your call on my life. I will be faithful in the valley of the shadow of death. When Stephen was being stoned to death for his faith, Jesus stood. Just love that. He sits at the right hand of the Father, but for Stephen, he stood. Did he say, Stephen, you didn't cast the demon out. They killed you. What were you thinking? When Jesus says to the church in Pergamum, to you who overcomes, to you who conquer, was he saying you have to take Satan out of Pergamum? Maybe, but I don't think so. He was saying, don't compromise. Stand in the dissonance. Put the chairs close together. Be faithful and be close. Eat at their table. And I will stand for you. Look in my eyes of fire and desire for you. And Jesus is going to say, Look at my beloved. Look at my beloved. They're in the shadow of the valley of death. They can't even see me. Maybe they can't even feel me and they're shining. They're in the valley. They're next to Satan. But look at my servant. They love me. the band come up? So, this question, what do we do when the demon won't leave? Well, first of all, it'd be great to get to a place where we can tell which ones are supposed to and which ones aren't. So, I mean, amen to that. I would love to have so much wisdom and revelation that we could be like Jesus and be like, nope, that one's, that one's here to win. It's their dark hour. But if you don't have that wisdom and revelation and you just pray them all away and some won't leave, I want you to know that whether it's because you don't have the authority, I want you to know that if it's because that demon is ordained to overcome in that hour, whatever the reason, you can conquer. 
in a bigger way. There's a bigger battle. There is a battle with a demon, but there's an eternal battle of being a faithful witness, of having presence warfare, of standing in the presence of darkness and saying, I am a faithful witness. And whether I burn or whether I cast you out, I am going to be faithful to the eyes of fire that love me and that I love. A fire that water can't quench. A fire that darkness can't put out. And when I get to heaven, Jesus is going to say to me, you were my faithful witness. In the darkest hour of your life, when all the lights went out, you were faithful to my name. Just like Antipas, just like Stephen, just like Jesus. Faithful to the end. So what do I say to my kids? Let your cup overflow. I don't say that. Let your cup overflow in the presence of your enemy. Love Jesus as you're attacked. Our life is meant to go out in battle. That means we're meant to go out and be next to demons. If you're not next to demons, you need to go and pray to God what your mission is, and then you need to go up and have some warfare. We are called to it. We are called to presence warfare. We are called to cast them out. And we need to learn to praise God in the uncomfortableness of sitting next to demons. And in this time when we are kind of experiencing uncertainty, when we have the sway of the enemy over the earth, when we have pestilence and plagues, we need to learn to worship God in the presence of our enemy. If you're suffering, if you have anxiety or depression or physical illness, we need to learn to worship God and have our cups overflow in the presence of our enemy. Let's stand together. Let's enter into the presence of God together. Let's enter into the presence of God together in the dark times. Lord, we're going to cast them out. And if we can't, we're going to stand to the end. We are going to be next to your enemy and we are going to worship you. And you know what? Some of them are going to turn because it's uncomfortable for them to be so close to us. So Lord, we pray for your power in our spirits to stand in the darkness, to not run away, but to stand, to sit even, to recline in the presence of Satan. Oh, it's just you. And let your presence fill our cups in the presence of our infirmity, in the presence of our difficulty in our life. We will worship you. Lord, I pray, fill every cup here in the name of Jesus. always with us, even in the valley.